Man, it's been a, good, a really good morning so far. Uh, my name's Kyle Brenneman. I, I serve as the, as the worship director here. And this morning we're going to continue on in our look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You know, we're, we're calling this series Strangers, Living for a Better Kingdom. And that's really what it's, what it's about, is, is learning what God's kingdom looks like. What are the... What are the characteristics of people that are in God's kingdom? What, what's the culture of God's kingdom? And how can we become more like that? And there's, and there's conflict with this, right? There's conflict with what God's kingdom is like, what the culture of his kingdom is like, and what our culture is like, and, and the things that we've come so accustomed to that, that we don't question them, but these Passages, they confront things within us. And it can be really hard to try to want to push back against them. But Jesus is inviting us here to something better. To his kingdom, a better kingdom, and to live with, under his leadership. So this morning, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 8. And here's what that says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, as we talked about before, blessed means, oh, how completely happy. How absolutely, completely happy. Not in a a circumstantial way, not in a way that changes, but a deep, true happiness and joy. Oh, how completely happy. And this morning, the people that Jesus says are completely happy are the pure in heart. Now, some of the things Jesus says, has said so far in in Matthew chapter 5, you know, we instantly feel some measure of confusion and frustration in a way that resembles what his original audience would have heard, what his disciples and those who followed him up the mountain would have have felt. The same sort of confusion and frustration and, and just being perplexed about what Jesus is saying. For example, Jesus, when he said, blessed, oh, how completely happy are those who mourn. Yes, like grief is, it's true of everyone throughout time, from Adam and Eve all the way through to until Jesus comes back. There will be things for us to grieve and mourn. There'll be hurt, there'll be loss, there'll be pain. But it just sounds weird to us and it would have sounded weird to Jesus' disciples to talk about being blessed, being completely happy, and having that being bound up in mourning and sadness. It just doesn't seem to fit. Or another one. Oh, how completely happy are the meek. 21st century America, 1st century Galilee, it doesn't matter. Meekness is not something we're like, oh yeah, I want that. I don't want to be a doormat for anybody. I want to stand up for myself and exert my strength and show that I'm not somebody to be messed with. So some of these, as we read through them, we feel probably fairly similar to what Jesus' original audience felt. But today, as we look at Matthew 5.8, I don't think this strikes us quite the same as 21st century Americans as it did Jesus' disciples in first century Galilee. 
And, and that's because th- th- there's sort of a contrast here that Jesus is playing off of that we don't see because it's unstated. We don't see it, but, but Jesus' disciples and those who followed him up this, this mountain to listen to him, it would have struck them. You see, for them, it wouldn't have been shocking or countercultural in the slightest if Jesus had said, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. If they had heard that, they would have thought, well, yeah, of course. You need to be pure. That makes total sense. That much is obvious from reading the Old Testament. If you go back to the first part of the Bible and read through the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are large chunks. Basically all about how to get pure and stay pure. Pretty much anywhere you would see the word clean or unclean or defiled or unblemished. Or often even the word holy. It's talking about this very thing. How to be pure and how to stay pure. And this kind of ritual purity was necessary for God's people to do things like to go to the temple and worship him. And, or even participate in different aspects of community life. If, in certain ways, if you were impure, you couldn't even live in town. You had to live out in the country somewhere. So this was a massive deal, whether or not you were pure. And so the people who followed Jesus up this hill, hearing him say this, they knew the importance of purity. And they knew what God said about how to, how to get pure and stay pure. Like in Leviticus 11, where God lists out all these different foods and things that you can eat and things that you can't eat. Foods that are clean and foods that are unclean. And so they knew what they, had to, had to, what they could eat if they wanted to stay pure. Or Deuteronomy 22, where God told them what kinds of clothes they could and couldn't wear. So they made sure that their wardrobes met that standard. Or Numbers 19, where God said that if, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. And then there were certain offerings you had to make and steps you had to take in order to be made clean again, in order to be purified. The list goes on and on and on about how to plant your crops, about how to cut your hair, about how to purify your house if you find mold in it, about how, how, what you had to do to be made pure again if you had a skin disease, or what you had to do to get pure again if someone who had a skin disease spit on you. Rule after rule after rule about how to get pure and stay pure. And Jesus' followers lived this stuff. Jewish culture was completely built around it. Holidays, food, work weeks, their language, their education system, their relationships, every facet of their life revolved around these commands God had given about purity and cleanliness. So anyone listening to Jesus that day would have been quick to shout an amen if he had simply said, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In a roundabout way, Jesus was saying, your culture, your lives, your thinking, it revolves around being right and pure on the outside. But my kingdom, my better kingdom, centers around being right and pure on the inside. And letting outward obedience flow from that. So in adding just those two little words, in heart, Jesus emphasizes the true target 
of what our purity should be. All that care you take to avoid touching something unclean, all the food laws you, you so carefully follow, all the care you take in your wardrobe and your hair, like all of that, all of that is worthless without a pure heart. Because God isn't just looking at how clean our hands are. He's looking at how clean our heart is. Now, to be clear, Jesus never told anyone to stop following God's commands. In fact, he actually did the opposite. He raised the bar on what it means to obey God. And he did this by highlighting the fact that obeying all of God's commands was never supposed to be the goal. It was never supposed to be our goal. Loving God from a pure heart, that was the goal. You know, we're here in Matthew 5, 8 today, but if you drop down just a little bit, it's about the middle of chapter 5 and verse 27. Jesus makes this really clear by putting this pure in heart thing into a real life scenario. Matthew 5, 27, and it says this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whether or not you actually physically commit adultery isn't the only question. What's going on on the inside? Because Jesus says that, that looking at someone, looking at a man or a woman and, and just lusting after them, it's still adultery. Just because it's only in my mind or in my heart doesn't mean it's okay. It's still breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So it's not just about the purity of our actions. It's about the purity of of our hearts. Jesus does a similar thing right before this, where he, he talks about murder and anger. Essentially saying, you think you're okay because you haven't actually killed someone? Okay, well, great. Thank you for not killing people. But what's your reaction to them in your heart? Is it one of, of love and compassion and care? Or in your heart, do you foster hatred and feed anger and come up with ways to insult them and undercut them. Just because I don't physically attack someone or verbally berate them doesn't mean I'm innocent. What's going on on the inside? So while the earthly consequences might be very different between committing adultery and, and lusting or committing murder and, and harboring bitterness against someone, while the earthly consequences will be very different, as far as God's concerned, sin is sin. All of it, external and internal, makes us impure and reveals the impurity of our hearts. It's true whether we follow through or whether we just daydream about it. So here in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus is, is subtly saying, you can't just care about what's going on on the outside. And this is something the people in Jesus' day really struggled with. Over and over and over, Jesus addressed the fact that the religious leaders in particular 
were way more concerned with making themselves look godly than they were about the state of their hearts. There are a ton of passages that we could look at with this. But Jesus confronted it head on in Matthew 23. He was speaking about the religious leaders of his day and he said this. You hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of, bone, full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is holding nothing back when he confronts these people. Scrubbing the outside of the cup so it's nice and sparkly and clean. But then you look inside and you're like, uh-uh. It's like milk crusty in the bottom. And something stuck to the side. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to drink out of that thing. When it comes to actually taking a drink, I care far more about how clean the inside of the cup is than the outside of the cup. Or whitewashed tombs. They may be pretty on the outside. They might be impressive, but... If you know what's on the inside, you don't want any part of that. No one wants to crack open that door and smell all that rotting flesh come wafting out. Nobody wants that. It's disgusting. It's impure. So Jesus was calling these people out for putting up a godly appearance, a godly facade, while neglecting the filth that festered in their hearts. Now, Jesus was talking about this in terms of purity with them, but we don't tend to think in those terms. Because purity in the way that it was important to them isn't important to us in our culture, but we definitely fall into the same trap about caring more about what other people see than what's going on in our own hearts. Growing up, I 100% felt this way. I grew up going to church and I was the good kid. All the way through high school, I was, I was the good kid. The golden boy, if you will. I was polite and responsible and respectful. I got good grades. I stayed out of trouble. I was involved in all the right activities at church and at school. And, you know, that's just kind of like how I was raised, what I grew up doing. And, and it was innocent enough at first. But over time, this perfect image, this this golden boy image started to weigh on me. I don't know how it happened. I don't, there wasn't like a moment where I felt, where I suddenly felt this. But I went from just being a kid to feeling as though I had to constantly be polishing this golden boy image. I wasn't hiding some secret double life. I didn't have any major like skeletons in my closet, so to speak but I still felt like I couldn't mess up or, or admit that I had messed up to anyone because this image. And this, and this type of thinking in me was actually unknowingly encouraged by those around me. One time when I was in high school, a woman from church pulled me aside and she's like, Kyle, you give me hope that my son can grow up to be a good Christian young man. She meant that completely as a compliment. But when I hear that, when I heard that, 
I thought, I can't mess up. I can't admit that I've messed up. I have to make sure that this golden boy image stays pure, stays, stays looking good and nice and shiny. Because if, if I mess up now, like she, she's, her, she has hope for her son because of me. And so I, I need to keep polishing this image, keep polishing this image. I can't mess up. I can't mess up. I had slowly but surely fallen into this trap of caring more about how people perceived me than pursuing godliness. Which, when we consider God, the emphasis God places on what's going on in our hearts, what this really meant was I cared more about what other people saw from me than what God saw in me. And reflecting back on it, I don't think I was intentionally avoiding what was going on in my heart. I don't think I ever believed or thought or would have said, like, what's going on in my heart doesn't matter. I just need to keep up these appearances. I wouldn't have thought that at all. But I had gotten so preoccupied with the outside of the cup. I'd gotten so consumed with polishing this golden boy image. I didn't have time to think about what was inside. Considering what was going on, there wasn't time. I had to keep polishing this image of myself that other people could see. That was 20 years ago. But the temptation is still there. And I'm sure a lot of you can relate. I'm tempted to do things that make me look humble instead of pursuing humility. I'm tempted to say things that make me sound wise instead of pursuing wisdom. I'm tempted to do things that make me look kind instead of pursuing becoming more like Jesus who has a heart that just overflows with kindness and compassion for people. Even looking at these beatitudes, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the ones who act meekly. He says, Blessed are the meek. Not those who, who, who just do the thing, but those who are truly in the, their heart meek. The temptation was to care more about how people saw me than what was going on the inside. And that temptation follows us all. And this preoccupation with outward appearance over inward purity, it can take different forms. The, another way that this can, can show up is one, that, is, is one that shows up when we find ourselves comparing ourselves with others to make ourself, ourselves feel better. We look around at those around us. We look around at other people. And we start to think that we're okay because our lives are cleaner on the outside than theirs are. You know, we don't, we don't do those bad sins like those people do. But once again, we fixate on the external and think that that means we're okay. But when I, when, when I fall into that kind of thinking, when we fall into that kind of thinking, we're basically looking at the outside of somebody else's cup and thinking, I'm glad the, outs- the outside of my cup is clean compared to theirs and assuming that the inside of the cup is clean because the outside of our cup is cleaner than theirs. All the while, while we are impressed with ourselves and how clean the outside of our cup is, there's pride and judgmentalism 
and a lack of love and compassion that forms a disgusting film inside our hearts. So while this may play out differently for us than it did for those who heard Jesus 2,000 years ago, we are just as prone to becoming preoccupied with outward appearance as they were. It's the neglect of our hearts. And you know what? We can fool people with this. We can. We can even fool ourselves. In Jeremiah, it says that the, the, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Like it's deceitful. We, we can't even know our own hearts. Like who can know it? Is what Jeremiah writes. Who can know the heart? We can deceive ourselves. But none of it fools God. God sees everything that goes on in our hearts with perfect perfect clarity. Hebrews 4.13 says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is not fooled. He's not fooled by what we show the rest of the world. Our selfish motives, our sinful desires, our unloving thoughts towards others, God sees it all. It's all laid bare before him. He knows. He knows as we, as we endlessly scroll through social media, what things we hope pop up. He sees our hearts. He sees those desires. He knows what content we are secretly hoping is in that Netflix show we're about to start. But we don't want to look it up. We don't want to look up what kind of content warnings there are because, you know, then if I watch that, I'd feel guilty. And so I start the show and then I can just be, oh, I didn't know. And think we're in the clear because we can, we can, we're ignorant of it. God knows the motivations of our hearts. He knows what we're after, what we're looking for. He is not fooled by that. God can hear the insults that never come out of our mouths. He hears our thoughts. And even the good things that, that I do, the good things that we do, often they're tainted with sin because they're driven by impure motives. God can tell when I'm only generous because I think I want to get something in return. God can tell if I only want to serve in very public capacities so people can see how godly I am and how, how servant-hearted I am. But it's also everyday things. God can see if I'm cleaning the kitchen out of love or with a grumbling heart. God sees it all. He sees What's on the inside, he sees what's on the outside. He knows everything about me. Every mixed and impure motive, every desire that conflicts with what he has called me to. He's seen every sin that I've ever committed outwardly and every sin that I've committed in the privacy of my own heart. God's seen the sins that I've done knowing full well what I was doing. Full out rebellion, telling God, you know what? I don't care right now what you think. I'm doing it. I'm, I want to do this. I'm going to do it. 
And God also knows the sins that I've done that I am completely oblivious to. The things that I was or am completely blind to. He knows the sins that I've long forgotten about. And he knows the sins that I haven't even committed yet. Remember, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. It is laid bare before him. And the impurity of my heart, and how sinful I am, stand in stark contrast with how perfectly pure and holy God is. And that difference between our impurity and God's perfection is a problem for us. It is a massive problem. I was thinking about how to to describe the problem that it is for us that our hearts and our lives, we're impure and God is perfectly pure. and, and, And the best way I could think of to describe it was to tell you a story, a true story, about a little fish named Brunhilde. So one year in college, my wife Emily and the other women on her hall had sort of a communal fish tank. It was this little small fish tank, and there were a half dozen or so little fish in it. And it kind of became like the hall pets. Well, the problem with something like that is that, generally speaking, nobody knows really whose responsibility it is. And so the, the fish got fed with some regularity, but one thing that didn't happen is that nobody took responsibility for cleaning the tank. It didn't take long before the tank started to get kind of gross. And then as cheap fish that you just sort of grab from whatever store you find them at, that's what happens is, you know, they started to just die off one by one. And they all died. Except for Brunhilde. This little fish seemed invincible. Tank kept getting dirtier and dirtier. And then a second semester rolled around Things kind of changed a little bit, and and the fish became less of a hall pet and more of a hall science experiment. I wonder if Brunhilde would eat this, dropping in some a bit of their sandwich. What about this, dropping in a French fry? What about this, some crumbs of a cookie? Some of Brunhilde ate, some of it she didn't, and what she didn't, as you would imagine, just kind of fell to the bottom and sat there in this tank that was still not getting cleaned. And then, you know, every few weeks, someone would be like, huh, I wonder if Brunhilde would like some Diet Coke. Coffee. Red Bull. One time, shampoo. And just like Dory, Brunhilde just kept swimming, swimming, swimming. This fish was indestructible. But then the end of the year started to, started to approach, and, and they were like, well, what do we want to do with this fish? What do we want to do with Brunhilde? Somebody's got to take it home, but nobody was going to take that tank in their car. That thing tipped over, just burn the car. Forget it. Like, it's not worth redeeming. This tank was so gross. So they went out and bought another a fish bowl, a clean fish bowl, and they went in and filled it up with fresh, pure, clean water. Reach in, they get Brunhilde. They drop her in this fresh, clean water. 
Within minutes, Brunhilde died. This fish that was indestructible, that was perfectly fine swimming in all of this filth, died when it was exposed to fresh, pure, clean water. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with the water. The water was great. Actually, it's, it's, it's the kind of water that helps a fish be healthy and grow and thrive. The problem wasn't with the water, the problem was the fish. The fish had taken on so many impurities from swimming in that filthy tank that as soon as it hit that fresh water, its body went into shock and it couldn't recover. When we are impure and we try to approach a holy, perfect God, that's our problem. The problem isn't God. He's not mean and, and, and his holiness and he's not looking to... He just, he's perfectly pure. And if we are impure, we cannot coexist. The thing that makes him so good, the thing that makes him so wonderful, the thing that makes that, that about him that makes it, that we need him for life is also the thing that makes him dangerous to us if we are not pure as he is pure. So there's a reason throughout the Bible, over and over and over, there's this phrase, be holy for I am holy, be holy for I am holy, be holy for I am holy, the Lord says. Because we cannot approach God unless we are holy. But that's a problem. How do we purify ourselves? We can't. A mess can't clean up a mess. Thankfully, God made it his problem. Our impurity can't coexist with God's purity, and so God took it upon himself. Instead of just writing us off as damaged goods, instead of of seeing us as too much of a mess to be worth dealing with, God made our mess his problem, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Jesus to live a life of perfect purity and die for us. And in Jesus' death on the cross, God offers us the hope of being made pure so we can come to him without fear. 1 John 1 says this, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, all that is not good within us. God purifies our hearts when we confess that our hearts are a mess, when we confess that we need Jesus. God takes the blood of Jesus and purifies us from all of our sin. That is the only way to be made pure is for God to do it for us by the blood of his son. And that verse, <laughs> that verse twice uses the word all, purifies us from all our sin and from all our unrighteousness. You know what gives me so much confidence in that word all? The same God 
who promises to purify us from all sin and all unrighteousness is the same God who knows and has seen all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness. He knows what he's getting into when he tells us this. Think about it. At first, the thought of God seeing everything I've ever done, every motive of my heart, every thought that's crossed my mind, like that's a terrifying thought when I think of a holy God and me and how many times, even today, I have and will continue to mess up. It's a terrifying thought that God sees and knows all of it. But it's also a comforting thought. It's a thought that brings hope because God isn't going to miss anything. When God purifies, he purifies completely. There's no corner of my heart that he's going to forget to clean. There's no sin he's going to overlook and not forgive. Since past, since present, since future, all of them washed away by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of his son. And so this God that sees every last bit of our sin is the God who purifies us from every last bit of our sin. No sin too big, no sin too bad, no sin too hidden. For him to purify us completely. Only God can see our hearts and only God can cleanse our hearts. And he is eager to do so. God is eager to extend his mercy and grace to all of us. It just takes us confessing our sins to God. Acknowledging our need of Jesus. And, and, and he will make us pure and oh how completely happy oh how blessed are the pure in heart and why are the pure in heart happy because they will see God we will see God I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there have been a few times in my life that I've gotten a little picture of what Jesus means by this. And that comes when, when I've gone on a flight. Your plane lands, and you get off, and you're walking out of the terminal towards the exits, and you get to that spot where people are allowed in from the outside. You can kind of see it down the hallway, but as you look up, you see this big group of people. You see them pressing up against that rope that they're not allowed to cross. And you see their big signs that say, welcome home. You see the balloons that they brought and the flowers that they're holding. And you see them stretching, looking, 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 trying to, trying to catch a glimpse trying to catch a glimpse of someone, trying to see someone. Not someone they don't know. This isn't like hope for a celebrity saying, but someone that they love, that they haven't seen in a long time. They are so happy because they get to see someone they have not seen in maybe years. They get to hug someone they haven't hugged in years. And they're there waiting, looking. So excited and happy to catch a glimpse. And then someone brushes by you on your side and like, Whoa, who was that? And it's someone that is running to them. 
and hear this happiness escape from people as they, as they cry out with joy that they see this person that they love so much. And they've been happy. They've been happy since they got the call from the person that said, hey, I bought my ticket. I'll see you soon. They've been counting down the days. They've been anticipating. They've been, they've been longing for that moment that they will get to see the one that they love. For those that God has purified, that's what it's like. It's not some sort of passing, like, oh, look, there's a celebrity. Wow, that was cool. I'm happy. No, it's someone that we love and someone that loves us, someone that has purified us, that sent his son for us who didn't throw us away, but brought us into his home and made us his children. That's who we are longing to see. And there's joy in thinking about that day when we will finally see him. The one that loves us so much and the one that we love. Church family, if If you have confessed your sins, he is faithful and just and he has purified you from all unrighteousness and you will see God. And we are one day closer to that day. May our happiness and joy increase as we anticipate the day that we will see God. Oh, how completely happy are the pure in heart, for we shall see God. God, we long for that day. God, we desire that day when we will see you, when we will be with you, when you embrace us and tell us, welcome home. God, Thank you for making that possible. Thank you for purifying us, for giving your son for us, that we might be made pure by his sacrifice, pure by his blood. God, may we continue to walk in purity as we continue to look forward to that day. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we love you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.